Hello and welcome to another edition of The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. Um, folks, empathy. I want to just kind of touch on this question of, you know, do you think you're an empathetic person? Um, and partly the reason I ask that is uh, my guest today, we're going to you know, unbundle that in a little bit. She's uh, done some amazing work in this area. One of the questions I pose with the leaders that I work with um, is how do you think people feel about themselves when they're in your presence? And if you're not paying attention to that, you're going to be missing some incredible opportunities to excel, not just get along. Um, Dr. Nicole Price has written a book called Spark the Heart. And I first uh, met Nicole um, when uh, David uh, Meltzer, my partner, and I you know, were hosting an office hours show uh, a number of weeks back. Um, and she was on the show, and I was absolutely in rapt awe of what she was talking about and what she was framing and how she was positioning some things here, particularly from a leadership perspective. Um, you know, Nicole's a, a, a chemist by trade, a chemical engineer. So, you know, you think about chemical engineer, logical, uh, you know, linear thinking, that sort of thing. And to write a book on, on Spark the Heart that is a unbelievable deep dive into this question of empathy. And yeah, the book itself, uh, dispels common empathy myths, such as empathy is a trait that you're born with. Uh, and empathy requires you to take on the other person's beliefs and values. Yeah, none of which are true necessarily at all. Um, she's got an interesting way of framing this stuff. And her research really bores, uh, bears out a lot of the stuff that we're going to be exploring here today. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Nicole Price, welcome to the show. Blaine, I'm so glad to be here with you. <laughs> this is so much fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I, you know, pre-show, we were talking a little bit about that. And this connection that I felt back then, you know, when we were, you know, in a 15 hour, or 15 hour, 15 minute little segment, there was something that was sparked in me that said, there's a connection here. You need to follow this up. So in the context of empathy, how does that and I use the word spark, you know, very specifically here. There were, there was something that was you know, kind of felt in me that said, this is somebody I want to spend some time with. Um, I care about what she thinks. I care about who she is. I care about what she's up to in the world. Is that an example of empathy? I would say that feeling that you have, I think is necessary in order to be able to demonstrate empathy to others. What you just described to me is that you are in touch with how you feel about things. And oftentimes people want to encourage leaders to be empathetic to, to others. Mm -hmm. but we're working with leaders who've never been given the permission to feel anything. You ask people how they're doing today, Blaine, and what do they say? Fine, fine. or busy. Fine <laughs> yeah. or busy. Yep. And, and neither fine nor busy are, are feelings. And if you ask people to think about how they feel. And I'm talking about myself too, a while ago, we're more likely to tell you how we think or what yeah. we think and less likely to tell you how we feel. And so I think the fact that you are in touch with your emotion, you were feeling what I was feeling at the same time. And that was a connection between us. That That's mm -hmm. how I view it. Maybe. Yeah, I, I like that. And, you know, I, it reminds me, uh, I, I was doing some work with IBM a whole, you know, another lifetime ago. 
And I was talking about, you know, the you know, feelings. I mean, you know, <laughs> this was back in the 80s uh, and feelings. It's kind of like, you know, what that has no place in the work environment. What are you even bringing this up to the table for? And I literally had one of the engineers say, I don't know what I don't know what that is. Yeah. And, and we had to get a dictionary out and, and, and he wasn't being facetious. It was kind of like, this is not in my realm of experience. What is a feeling? And I was reminded of uh, something that Ulysses wrote. Um, and it was uh, the Dubliner, I think was the, the, mm-hmm. the, the actual book. And the opening line in the book was Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And that phrase has always struck a chord in me because that is my experience of how many leaders actually go through their day. They're a short distance from their body. It's an intellectual construct and their their focus and fixation is on results. Mm-hmm. And you, may, you mentioned here um, that empathy is a demonstrated process. Yes. I can feel something, but how do I actually demonstrate that? What's the behavioral analog? What does that look like? Yeah. Where does that come into play? How do you work with that with the people that you work with? You know, one of the, the critical learnings that I've had on my own empathy journey was that you can understand a thing and not do it <laughs> or, not, or, or not practice it. Um, I think I was expecting that because I was so far behind on my empathy journey that I was going to join this empathy <laughs> crusade and there were going to be all these people who were masterful at how they demonstrate empathy. But what I found instead was people who practice selective empathy. So they, they know how, uh-huh. <laughs> they know how to get you to be uh, empathetic towards a group or a person they want you to be empathetic towards, but not a general empathy that is uh, transferable across people and groups. No, no, they don't know how, they don't know how to do that. Um, and so what you and I, I think, have also kind of talked about and what this looks like in practice is how can I, in every interaction, think about how I can understand better what the other person is thinking, mm-hmm. feeling, and believing, recognizing that it makes total sense to them. And that might not make any sense to me. But yeah. from that level of understanding, now I can better communicate. I can make better decisions. I can maybe bring them along on my change initiatives, all sorts of things. You know, boy, you, you open up a number of different rapid holes. <laughs> <for Yeah. me. laughs> um, this, this idea of sense making, that, yeah, that, that idea that I have to understand what you're doing um, before I can be uh, demonstrating empathy. I don't need yeah. to understand what it is. I need to be curious about it and inquire about it, I think. Yeah. But yeah, your world is different than mine. And, and I will probably never be able to make sense in the way that you make sense out of the world that we yeah, co yeah, inhabit because uh, yeah. you're going to see it differently. But the idea of being able to at least suspend my preference for what you're doing or how we're how we're thinking or how we're engaging it's that suspension of, of preference that in my experience opens the door towards a different kind of a conversation is is that a good assessment i think or so a useful I assessment have, i have an analogy uh, my friend rick robson um is an amazing navigator and let's say you were directionally challenged Rick would just ask, okay, which direction do you think is north? 
and you can tell him whatever you want. And he could give you directions, even if you were wrong, based off of what you thought north was. He could then tell you if you needed to turn right or left or whatever. I, it was masterful and it was quick too. He could do that so easily. And I think that's what you're saying. Like, how can I know what you think is North? Mm-hmm. And so now I can help you get to, from where you are to wherever it is you want to be, uh, recognizing that that's a leader's primary job, coaching folks to get from wherever they are to wherever they want to be. And whenever I get a chance to talk about these things, Blaine, in people's minds, they automatically go to some of the world's most nefarious people. Mm. Like, what is the, what if the, what if we're this way towards the most dangerous people in the world? And it's like, I just want you to be this way with your Aunt Gloria. Yeah. <laughs> Can you try exactly. to Aunt Gloria first? <laughs> yeah. Start small. Let's start small. Baby steps here. Yeah, start small here. <laughs> yeah, the likelihood of me meeting Muammar Gaddafi or whatever is pretty remote. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty, pretty remote. And, or have you ever even been to a prison? Why are you thinking about the people who are in solitary confinement in the supermax prison? Like that is not your reality, but you work in finance and someone turns their expense report in one day late. And so now you, you won't give them their money and they've never been late. It's like, okay, let's think about how we can just unpack the implications of a decision we might make. Mm-hmm. And what would we want to happen if it were us? And Blaine, I keep I keep saying that I think our opportunity is in the small areas. Yeah. Uh, today, I was in a conversation and a lady was late for a meeting we were in. And when I say late, I'm like, we're 67, 60 seconds, maybe after our supposed start time. It's going to be an all day meeting. Well, the person who's getting ready to introduce me says, well, I called her. I texted her. I don't know what happened. She was sick. She was sick yesterday. Um, she, you know, showing the text messages. I don't know who she is. And I just thought, if I were her, what would I want to be my, if, let's say I am late and maybe I just overslept. I don't have a good reason even for being late. How would I be set up for the day if when I showed up, people were like, you didn't respond to my text message. I've told everybody here you were late. I also told them you were sick yesterday <laughs> versus if that were us, what would we want people to just be happy? We made it safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I have a, a issue with chronic tardiness, that's a different conversation. Yeah. But in general, how can we truly try to think about what would make someone's experience with us? What do we want? What did you say at the beginning? How do, how do we people, want- yeah, how do people feel about themselves when they're in my presence? Yes. Yeah. They- and there's, yeah. And there's a way to make people feel good about themselves, even if late. Yeah. 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 And you, you, you talk about, you know, um, and this is, I think, yeah, absolutely one of the themes that you, that you consistently work towards. People want to do a good job. And that empathetic leadership is critical to leveraging that desire. I don't, honestly, I've never met anybody that consciously and deliberately sets out to screw something up. I've never met that person. I've heard about them hypothetically, but I've never met that person. And I've worked with over 300, almost 400,000 people personally in the last four, four decades. I mean, where is that person? People want to do a good job. 
people want to do a good job. And when they're not doing a good job, there's things, there's circumstances, there's reasons. And if we can understand that better, we will be better coaches, we'll be better leaders. And um, I think sometimes it feels like I'm telling people this because I've studied it. Well, no, I, I didn't. I didn't used to care. I honestly didn't used to care. I would have started my meeting today if that lady were late and not even thought about the fact that she were late. Our start yeah. time is whatever our start time is, and we're starting. And when you get here, hello, welcome, and we're somebody else can recap you. I would have never even thought about it. But now I have a sensitivity that I can't, I can't go back. Just constantly thinking about how are things landing on the people who are experiencing me in my, my sessions and my workshops. Yeah. Yeah. And that sensitivity goes a long way. I've got a hunch. Yeah. You, you, you had talked a little bit you know, uh, uh, earlier about um, situational empathy. And yeah. as you were talking about it, it, it kind of struck me that, that there's a difference between influencing and manipulation. Mm. And, you know, I'm going to be doing the same activity. I'm going to be doing the same thing. But if the intent is that I win and you lose or that I'm, you know, I win and I'm not too concerned about whether you win or not, there's going to be manipulation that comes into play here. And that's where I think situational empathy applies. Right. And I, I, I think also that's one of the reasons why I am open about the dangers of empathy. Um, just as a, as, as a concept, if you don't have that human center, you don't know how to feel. Like mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. Yeah. Like your engineer you described was like, what, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> but now you, but intellectually, you know how to tap into what motivates people. You know how to understand them, um, what drives them, how they think. Well, I'm not so sure you're going to be able to use that for good if you don't also have some level of emotional intelligence or some human dignity center that is going mm -hmm. to guide your uh, decision. And so um, I talk about all five types of empathy, but specifically cognitive or mental empathy is the one I, I work on the most because it's the easiest to teach. But I need, but I need for people to have that emotional center. I need them to yeah. have that. <laughs> now, you, you just mentioned something here that I think is, is, is new news to me. Uh, and I know we touched on it a little bit in the office hours interview that we did, but it was new news to me then, too. Uh, and I've got a hunch if it's new news to me, it's going to be new news to somebody that's listening right now. Five types of empathy. Empathy isn't just empathy. Empathy is not just empathy. In fact, uh, I think uh, I got into an argument. Can you be in an argument if the only one person is arguing? One hand clapping here. Yeah, yeah, but it, it felt like an argument, even though there was only one person arguing. So I was talking about cognitive empathy and how it doesn't mean that I have to, it doesn't even mean that I'm nice or kind. It, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that I understand that how you're motivated and whatever you think, feel, or believe makes total sense to you. And that might guide my decisions. Well, she was very conversant with effective empathy, meaning when Blaine is sad, I feel sad. When Blaine is happy, I feel happy. That emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And you can have one without the other. It's wonderful when they're in tandem, but you can be highly skilled in one. Um, in fact, when I meet people who are burnt out because mm -hmm. they're so empathetic, it's usually because they're low on the cognitive empathy scale. Because what will happen is 
they keep making decisions based on how someone feels Mm -hmm. and they have the inability to go, well, Blaine is not ready to work on this thing yet. (laughs) And if I'm paying attention to what Blaine says and paying attention to what Blaine does, I understand that Blaine is not ready to do this yet. But because they don't have that, they just keep going beyond what is uh, reasonable. And uh, so then they get burnt out. Another type is somatic empathy. So if you watch uh, um, a fight and you cringe, even though you didn't get hit, or you watch somebody eat something that you find to be gross and you go, "Mm," even though you didn't eat it, that's somatic empathy. That's feeling in your body what another person is experiencing. This is where the mirror neurons come in. and Yeah. Yeah. Compassionate empathy is actually you. And this one is your favorite, actually. I know this about you. It's when you take what you know from an empathetic perspective, but now you're motivated to do something about what you know. So I know something is harming you, or even I know something makes you happy. I'm motivated to act on it. Compassionate empathy. Mm -hmm. And then there's one that I think I made up, uh, but I call it (laughs) radical empathy. And that's. Hey, you're the expert. You get to have your own one. Yeah, I, I made this one up and, and it was because I was running into people who were incredibly empathetic in one area. But then if you wanted them to translate those skills to someone who was drastically different from them, from a cultural mm. standpoint, mm-hmm. they had the inability to do so. So let's say I'm really empathetic, um, but let's say my my wealth category puts me in uh, the the lower threshold in the U.S. Like, let's say I'm poor and I'm incredibly empathetic. But then you put me in a situation where people have incessant amounts of wealth. And all of a sudden, let's say somebody has a mental health challenge in their wealth. I have been able to understand mental health challenges related to poor people my entire life. Maybe I work all around it, everything. But as soon as someone is rich and they have a mental health challenge, now I'm dismissive. I don't mm. have the ability to empathize with that. Radical empathy is the ability to understand that there are different cultural influences, all different types that demand that we stretch our empathy muscles to go beyond the groups that we uh, know very well. hmm I love that. Those distinctions are just fascinating, Nicole. They really are. Um, I mean, when what I love about this conversation and what I love about you know making these sorts of distinctions is it gives me, and I'll just speak for myself, it gives me a place to go to say, what do I do here? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like if I use the word trust, you know, there's no trust. Okay, what am I talking about? Is it right. competency? Is it character? You know, what what is it that is actually contributing to this thing that we're calling trust? Empathy, I got I just got to know that people hear the word and they go, well, it's just a blanket. Yeah, one size yeah. fits all. Breaking it down in this way, I'm, I'm curious. You know, I've, I've done a fair amount of work with physicians and hospital administrators and hospital systems. I'm on the teaching faculty of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And burnout is a huge topic right now. And when you are, yeah, the the ability to go to a cognitive, empathetic assessment rather than getting emotionally drained because I'm feeling your 
that's an interesting way to actually address that burnout issue if we can teach it well. Yeah. Is that some of the work? And I know that I know the answer to this question. I'm a good lawyer here. I'll, I'll, answer, I'll ask a question I know the answer to. Is that some of the work that you do with your with your clients is to actually parse this out and teach them to do some of these things in a different way? Leading the witness. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged. That's exactly it. It's like the people when uh, some people are born with empathy and the mm -hmm. empathy they're born with is the affective or the emotional. You can't right. be born with the others, You're, but you can be born with that emotional one. And you see these children who are highly sensitive to all of the things that happen around them. And it's beautiful. And yet without good, solid boundaries, they end up being the, they're the collateral damage. Yeah. And so someone who's more naturally um, a more logical, reasonable objective, you know, I I can separate myself from you and your issue. Um, I think that the thing that we have to teach people is that I can sit with you. I can empathize with you. I can hold space for you and all of your emotions. And that is your issue, not mine. I want to take a real quick break right now. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your journey to this point, because starting out as a, as a chemist, uh, how did you get here? So we'll explore that when we come back. The nature of life is evidenced in nature. Nature grows, and all of nature honors the desire to be more, to have more, and to do more. Life thrives when it's allowed to grow. And ideally, thriving is what we also, all of us, want to be able to do. Unfortunately, at some stage in life, most people find themselves settling into what I can only call a rut. And a rut is nothing more than a coffin with the ends kicked out. You want to quickly get out of any rut that you find yourself in. When you stop growing, that's when the coffin starts to appear. You know, the simple truth is this, and this is true for everything in nature. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Every one of us dies. So the question we need to come to grips with is not are we going to die. The question nature asks us to answer is, are we truly living? That's what motivation is about. It's the desire to move. It's the desire to grow and to excel. Have I lived? How have I lived? I'd love for you to take advantage of my Leadership Mindset Masterclass. It's all about providing you with the tools to ensure thriving for yourself and for those around you. Register today to receive the free introduction video and find out more about this acclaimed program. You'll also receive a copy of my international number one bestseller, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. I'm Blaine Bartlett, and I look forward to helping you thrive. Welcome back, folks. My guest today, Dr. Nicole Price, is a chemical engineer that is working in the field of empathy. Now, you talk about an oxymoron, potentially. Uh, <laughs> sparks my curiosity. <clears throat> How did you get here from there? Oh, my gosh. It's such a long story. We don't really have full the full time <laughs> for me to take you through the entire thing. But I, I will start with, I am really good in science and math. 
and my personality disagrees a little bit. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I love that. So I'm an engineer, but I'm not, I still am not like most engineers if we're thinking and using our biases and grouping people together based on, you know, like shared affinity. Um, but because I was good in science and math, people pushed me towards engineering and I mm -hmm. think I excelled at it. But halfway through my work career, um, interestingly enough, I was not doing well with the people. So as long as I was working with in the research department, I was doing fine. Um, as long as I was a frontline engineer in manufacturing, I was doing fine. But when I started leading engineers and technical professionals, people just think because you're doing good that you can be a good leader. And you know better than that. I know better mm -hmm. than that now. But I was given 27 people with no um, training at all. You know, you can't you can't drive a city bus without training, but they will let you lead people without <laughs> leadership training. Yeah. And multimillion dollar and, enterprise. So I was, <laughs> oh, yes. Still today, people are still doing this. Yeah. And um, so I was given a coach because my my people were screaming foul. And one of the first sessions I had was uh, one on emotional intelligence. And it was about regulating, you know, how do you regulate what you what you feel so that mm -hmm. people want to work with you? I was exceptional at regulation. What I didn't understand was that you probably still should recognize your feelings, understand your feelings, label your feelings and express your feelings so that you can regulate them without suppressing them. Bingo. And so I was kind of walking through the world, suppressing my emotions. And then my mom died. Um, but my mom died and she was killed by a drunken driver. So we were in the middle of a murder trial that drug on for years. and. I finally had gotten to something that my mind couldn't work me out of. Mm -hmm. My body was starting to have all kinds of problems associated with it. Um, it was hard for me to focus. So my brain was also struggling a bit. And I remember the day that I went back to work and I'd been off work for about five years, five months. Um, my boss said, how are you doing, Nicole? You know, she's really interested in how things were with my mom. But then about two minutes later, she's like, okay, let's look at this list of things that didn't get done while you were gone for five weeks. That, that combination or her trying to combine those two things in that mm -hmm. meeting caused me to feel like I was not valued in that moment. That's yeah. what I felt. And it was one of the first times that I realized that there's a difference between being nice. She's a very nice woman. Uh, being nice and kind, but then also really caring about people in a way to help you understand that uh, empathy doesn't have to be the enemy of accountability. I still have work to do. Yeah. They're paying me to do work. I know that better than anyone else. But you can't. At the, I'm going to work better if I feel like that you value the experiences that I've had. Um, and so when I was struggling with my own personal um, emotions. I was in, my, in therapy and my therapist was asking me how I feel. And I was more like that engineer you described. Uh -huh. I started talking about how I, what I thought about what she said, what I thought about going back to work, what I thought about the murder trial. And he said to me, 
you've talked for a really long time, but none of those things were feelings. And it was one of the first times I realized that I had no, like, I was emotionally immature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had nothing. Mm -hmm. And to make it worse, I had been taught how to regulate and suppress feelings always come out, but they come out in ugly ways towards the wrong people and at really inconvenient times. Yeah. And um, so I met someone named uh, Ian Roberts at about the same time that this was happening, maybe like a year after. And I was moving on with my life. And he worked um, for one of the nation's most notoriously dangerous school districts at the time. And he was telling me about his work. And I said, oh, my gosh, you probably just need to fire everybody and get you a new leadership team. And he asked me, when was the moment I thought you should fire somebody? And I said, well, the moment you think of it, because that's an indication that there's a problem. And we both laugh. Um, But to shorten that story up, he spent about four years working on building my empathy muscle without even saying anything to me about it. Mm. And once I finally realized what was happening to me, I said, my goodness, you've been working with me on this for four years. And he just smiled. And he said, empathy can be taught, my dear. And that was when I said, well, we need to teach it to more people. But Blaine, the problem is you can't teach it fast. Right. It's not fast. People don't learn to be empathetic fast. Yep. And that's a big problem with what I do because people yeah. want things fast. It's a great opportunity based on what you do as well. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, we, before, the, before we started the episode, <clears throat> you said some of the most difficult people you work with are those that believe that they're empathetic. Correct. Now that's you know, my paraphrasing of what you said. Uh, in the time that we've got left, can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is an important topic. Um, yeah, everything is everything is a relationship. Everything is a relationship. Everything. And I I cannot count the numbers of times that I've had to work with leaders that are looking to clean up the collateral damage that they've produced because they weren't aware of what was going on. And awareness, is, in large part, has to do with empathy. Yes, and not and, one. And they, and they would say, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm empathetic. I'm aware." Mm. Look around, and it's kind of like maybe not. <laughs> yeah, and that's the challenge because typically the person who calls me, not always, but typically the person who calls me is the one who's going. These people need to be more empathetic, and I'm going. I want you to be more empathetic about why they might not be empathetic right now. Like, let mm-hmm. and. And if I do, uh, when I was an engineer, I used to do uh, what was called time studies, where you would walk around. Oh, people yeah. and oh yes. Taylor's time. time and motion studies. <laughs> yes. I have uh, converted those to what I call empathy walks. So my, my goal is not to time what you're doing. My goal is to, I'm scanning the, the landscape for empathy or where it is and where it's missing. And what has been shocking to me is that the people who call and say these people need to be more empathetic have no awareness for what their folks are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. They've never spent any time in those areas. They, they can't yeah. tell me what their top three constraints are. Nothing. They don't know when you consider what the people are feeling about their organizations. They've never even done any kind of employee engagement surveys. Um, I recently learned about a man who was trying to lead a very large organization, but he hadn't been to see his mom like at home in like 20 years. Well, it's an indication 
that there's some kind of work and some my mom he loves, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an indication that there's either some kind of work life balance thing. And how is it that the, those of us who work with him don't have any insight on that? Yeah. That means we're not connecting um, on a personal level in any way. And when I think about the people who are saying the world needs to be more empathetic, they are almost always suggesting that other people need to go first. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm saying if we want to change the world, we have to go first. That's yeah, Gandhi's be the change. <laughs> you be the change you want to see. Yeah, yeah. I um uh, recently uh, something we were interrogating was if you've got boomers, um, older boomers in the workplace, that oftentimes they just kind of push through, right? Like that's I'm speaking in sweeping generalizations, but they just push through. And if they got a little minor problem, they're going to minimize that problem and just push through. Like mm-hmm. such is life. <laughs> yeah. Well, as as we've been coming, becoming more and more in touch with our mental health, with the things that make for a more whole life, one where we can leave this, leave this thing, not torn all apart at the end. We get in touch with our emotions. We don't minimize things. Right. Well, more than likely, people will come to me complaining about a boomer rather than saying, what kind of trauma has happened that would cause a person to show up in a way where they minimize the things that hurt them? That's mm-hmm. empathy, though, yeah. to recognize that you just don't show up that way just because going back to my idea that everybody wants to w- wake up every day and have good relationships and do a good job. No one is saying, I want everyone to hate me and I want to screw this whole thing up. No yeah. one. No one. Folks, Dr. Nicole Price. Pearls of wisdom. I mean, I, I love this conversation. I'm going to have you back on, if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> for a reprise. Uh, I think we should do it in uh, in Kenya. I think that that would be a grand idea. Either that or a barbecue place in Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I would be very open to that. Where can people find out more about what you're doing, Nicole? DrNicolePrice.com. Okay. And folks, the book is Spark the Heart. I want you to get a copy of it. It is just filled with a treasure trove of suggestions, ideas, and it will spark your heart. It truly will. Blaine, you know, I laid out in the entire book the blueprint for how to teach empathy to others. Um, Because I hope that people will think that it's their job as people leaders to develop empathy as a skill set on their teams. And for parents, too, teaching empathy to their kids. I think that's a wonder. I love that. So thank you. Thank you very much. We will be back together again. There is a guarantee embedded in that statement. I appreciate (laughs) you having me. You bet. Folks, you've been listening to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. Uh, I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. Go to the uh, BlaineBartlett.com website or learn.blainebartlett.com. There's all kinds of resources there that you can use to enhance your effectiveness as a leader, not the least of which is a couple of things that might influence how empathetic you are going forward. Um, My admonition to you as I close off here is find ways in your life to be a center of distribution rather than a center of accumulation. You're going to find your life works a whole lot better when you're working from that framework. Take care, and I'll see you on the next episode. Hi, I'd like to uh, ask you to do something for me, if you wouldn't mind. If you liked this episode, I'd like you to uh, not only subscribe, 
uh, on your favorite site. But I'd also like you to uh, give a rating. Uh, ideally, a, a five-star rating would be you know, greatly appreciated. But I think more importantly also would be just uh, some uh, comments. Uh, that helps with the algorithm and it helps build the, uh, the audience with this. And more than anything else, if you could um, invite somebody else to listen, just share this episode with a friend, with a colleague, and uh, I'd like to see how we can grow the soul of business. I think it makes a difference. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.